Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast, my name is Kyle Dabro. What's going on, everybody? You have the podcast, Kevin Valentin here. Kyle, it's Thursday night. We are a few hours away, or a few days away, from week five of the NFL season. We are literally in the midst of the MLB playoffs. What do we got going on today? We got a lot to go on. It's going to be a pretty action-packed episode. So we'll go through the rundown go through some of the NFL games this weekend, go through the ALDS and the NLDS this weekend, and then we'll talk about the uh, the unfortunate event that happened to Kevin the last couple of days with the Yankees being eliminated from the playoffs by the Red Sox. So some of the games that we'll go over in the NFL, we'll go over the Chiefs and the Bills. It's obviously a huge rematch of the AFC Championship game from last season, so that should be a good game to go over. We'll talk about the Browns and the Chargers, you know, basically two young guns in Baker Mayfield and Justin Herbert going at it. And then the last game that we'll go over will be the Packers and the Bengals. Uh, both teams are currently sitting at three and one. Probably one of the biggest surprises of the entire season is the Bengals being at three and one. And Aaron Rodgers has been nothing but phenomenal since that week one debacle against the Saints. And then after that, we'll still keep it within the NFL. We'll talk about our biggest surprise within the first month of the season within the NFL. And then after that, we'll talk about who's been our biggest disappointment in the first month of the season so far in the NFL as well. Like I said, we'll talk about the ALDS, talk about the Rays and the, the Red Sox. We'll just kind of give a general idea of who we think is going to win that series. And then the same thing will be in the NLDS as well. That series is going to be between the Dodgers and the Giants. And then we'll wrap it up with the Yankees and what they need to do to be a more competitive team and the moves that they can make this offseason to be a better team for next year. All right, so the first game that we'll go over on the episode today, it is going to be the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills. So just to kind of give you guys an update on what these teams did last week, you had the Kansas City Chiefs. They won against the Philadelphia Eagles by the score of 42-30. to Patrick Mahomes had a sensational game in that game. I believe he threw five touchdowns, three of which were to Tyreek Hill. And then to kick it over to Buffalo the Bills just put an absolute beat down on the Houston Texans last week, shutting them out 40 to nothing. It was just one of the most well-rounded efforts from a team that I've seen all this year. I mean, granted, Houston's not that good of a team, but still, when you shut them out and you score 40 points in the process, that is a very impressive win in my book. So, Kevin, just to kind of kick this over to you, this is the rematch of the AFC Championship from last year. This is a big game, and I imagine there's going to be a lot of offensive firepower from both teams in this game. Uh, who do you think wins this game and why? So, I mean, first and foremost, we have two of the strongest arms in the entire NFL going head-to-head once again. And we all know how last year results ended up in Kansas City winning and going to the Super Bowl. Dude, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, you can make the argument that they are truthfully the two best quarterbacks in the NFL. And I am so excited for this matchup because – 
Both offenses have the potential to be electric. And the only downside I see here is the fact that Kansas City is going up against the best passing defense in the entire league in the Buffalo Bills. Now, that stat may be inflated because they have played a total of three average to below average quarterbacks. And by average, the only reason I say that is because they faced Tua for about two series before he went out. But they played Jacoby Brissett. And then they played that third string quarterback in Houston last week. So, I mean, like, overall, they have not necessarily played elite, elite talent. And when they did play Ben Roethlisberger, Ben had a pretty shitty game as well. So, Patrick Mahomes is better than all of those quarterbacks assimilated together. And it's going to be a challenge for Buffalo as well. So, let's not get that twisted. Um, I think that it's going to be a very close game. And I do think that the team that turns the ball over the most will lose. Obviously, it's usually how it works. But... Uh, I think I think Buffalo wins this game for the sheer fact that this 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 uh, Kansas City defense is pretty bad in, in and of itself. So I think that they're going to be able to score a lot on Buffalo's side. And I don't necessarily know if Pat Mahomes is going to be able to combat the pass rush and the corners like Tre'Davious White on the Buffalo Bills all day long. I mean, granted, the Chiefs do get another weapon. I don't know how much of a weapon he is any longer, considering he's been out of the league more times than I've can count in Josh Gordon. I don't know how viable he's going to be in Andy Reid's playbook. But overall, I will say that this is going to be a great game. I hope that this is probably going to be one of the games, if not the game of the year. I mean, when you talk about Josh Allen and Pat Mahomes, you think about the score being upwards of 40 to 35 or something of that magnitude. But again, I will lean towards Buffalo winning this game between the spread of three to seven points, mainly because Kansas City's home. And because Buffalo's defense has not played against a talent offensively quite like Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs. But I do still give the edge to Buffalo just because that Chiefs defense is atrocious. Yeah, I think the biggest factor that I'm looking at in this game, it's actually one team against another team. And it'll be Casey's offense against Buffalo's defense. And, and the reason why I point that out specifically is because I think Buffalo's offense is going to be able to score at will against Casey's defense. Casey's defense is just flat out bad. They've given up damn near 30 points in every game outside of the Browns game, where I believe they gave up 29. But outside of that, they've given up 30 plus in every game. And I just think Josh Allen's going to have his way against that secondary. I wouldn't be surprised if Josh Allen throws for 300, 350 yards against Casey's secondary just because they're that inept. But the main factor that I'm looking at is whether or not that Patrick Mahomes is going to be able to pass against this Buffalo defense. Buffalo has the best passing defense, like you mentioned, Kev. They've only given up, I believe, like 600 passing yards the entire 595. Well, okay, I was off by five yards. So you're going up against NFL talent. And the fact of the matter is, is that you're holding teams in passing to... 150 yards a game. That's extremely impressive. Now, granted, this is the best quarterback they will be going up against in Patrick Mahomes. And if I'm looking at KC here, I would just have to think that this offense is going to be able to find ways to find some exploits in this Buffalo defense. They were able to find those exploits in the AFC Championship game last year. I mean, they put an absolute beatdown on Buffalo in that AFC Championship game back at the beginning of the year. I think this is going to be a much more competitive game, though. It's just, it's whether or not that Buffalo's defense breaks. I definitely think that it will bend simply just because Patrick can just light it up at will. But if Buffalo defense bends, but it doesn't break, 
I think Buffalo could definitely win this game. If it breaks, though, I think KC has a very good shot to win this game. I think it's going to be a high-scoring affair. I definitely see this game being in the 30s for both teams offensively. I don't think this is a game where you're going to look at, wow, like these defenses really played phenomenal. I just because I think both offenses are going to be able to light it up. If I have to pick a team here, I've been kind of going back and forth on this one. I'm going to go with KC simply just because they are the home team. And I just think that when it's all said and done, I don't think that Patrick Mahomes is going to be the one making the mistakes in this game. I do believe that despite how bad KC's defense has been so far, I think they might force a turnover or two against Buffalo in this game. And I think that might be the difference because I think KC might get the advantage of getting points off of turnovers. And I think that'll be enough just to get them by. I mean, if I had to throw a score on this thing, I think it's going to be very close. I don't think this is a game where either team smokes the other team. I think this is going to be possibly a three to seven point game, but I do give KC the edge. If I had to throw a score, I'm going to say like 38 to 35. I really see it being this close. And I think this is going to be probably one of the best games that we will see throughout the entire year. Granted, it's only week five and we still have a long way to go, but this could potentially be one of the best games that we see all year, in my opinion. I I just, I, I love when we have, well, obviously, for those of you that don't know, I love defensive games. So, you know, the Patriots and the Bucks game last week, although it was due to rain, I do love low-scoring games because that just puts such emphasis on a team that when they do score, it means that much more mm-hmm. versus score for score for score for score. It's just like you almost expect every time. And, like, when they don't, it's like, a, oh, like somebody fucked up or, like, you know, mm-hmm. they weren't able to do something. Nevertheless... I don't see that as a, 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 an issue, <laughs> at least this week, in terms of two of the best quarterbacks in the league going head-to-head. So, I mean, we will see what happens. Super excited for it. I mean, the slates of Sunday night and Monday night games have been absolutely incredible this season. I mean, you can't really give kudos to the scheduling. It's, it's kudos to the teams that are being put in these situations because they are performing very well and at a high level. And another team that's performing at a high level, or should I say two teams that are performing at a high level, it's going to be the two teams we talk about next, which is the Cleveland Browns and the L.A. Chargers. So obviously Justin Herbert is coming off of a Monday night victory against the Las Vegas Raiders, and and the Cleveland Browns are also coming off of a victory last week against the Chicago Bears. Was it the Bears? Yep. No, that was two weeks ago when they had nine sacks. Oh, right? they played the Vikings. They played the Vikings. They saw 14-7. And they were able to hold off Minnesota's run as well. So overall, both teams are playing really well at the record of 3-1. and one. Both teams are leading their division, respectively. I mean, well, both of them are tied for tie. the lead. Both of them are tied. But at, at the end of the day, I don't think anybody saw the Chargers leading their division and the Browns leading their division. So, Kyle, I'm just going to ask you, in the battle of the younger quarterbacks, the young gunslingers, gunslingers that are... Justin Herbert and Baker Mayfield, Mayfield. I can't believe I had a brain fart of who the hell we were talking about. Who do you think is going to win and why? I'm going with Justin Herbert and the Chargers, man. I I have to say, I was really impressed with what Herbert was able to do against Vegas last week because Vegas going into that Monday night matchup against the Chargers just a couple days ago, man, he was on fire in that first half. He threw three first half touchdowns threw for almost like 180 yards and was just doing a great job being able to distribute the ball 
to his targets. And now typically when we look at the Chargers, like when it comes to their wideouts, we always kind of focus on Keenan Allen and Mike Williams as like the standout guys. They got held they got held in check pretty well against Vegas's defense in week four. And I do expect a bounce back game from, from those two in particular. Keenan Allen had maybe like seven catches, but he only had like maybe 40 to 45 yards receiving it. And Mike Williams, I believe he only had like one or two catches the entire game. I think these two have a huge bounce back game. I could see Herbert potentially going for 250, maybe 300 yards passing. I do think that they could find some exploits in this Browns defense. But I will say this though, that Browns defense has been phenomenal at getting to the quarterback this year. Like we saw Miles Garrett is just putting on an absolute show at the DN spot. He is just a beast when it comes to getting pressure on the quarterback. In the last two weeks, the Bears, not the Bears, the Bengals have been extremely impressive on the defensive side of the ball. They've only allowed 13 points in the last two games. Now granted, it's the Bears and the Vikings. Those are two teams that are, let's just say, subpar to be nice. And I do think that this is a very good challenge for the Browns since that week one challenge that they had against the Chiefs. So I do think that this game is actually going to be a little bit low scoring uh, than what the Chargers have been accustomed to the last couple of weeks. I see this game going in the mid-20s. I think both teams are going to be able to kind of keep it close. I kind of have see, I got to see how Baker is coming off of this pec injury. I believe he has some issue with his labrum. And it could definitely affect his ability to produce for this Browns offense. But I think they're going to try to focus on running the ball with Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, and, you know, see what happens. I I think having those two in the backfield, I think it's going to be crucial for this team. And if it does kind of get into a shootout, you still have decent targets in Odell Beckham Jr. Leave, um, who else is on the um, wide receiving core for the Browns? Jarvis is hurt, so he's not playing. But even still, I I think that the Browns are going to keep it close, but I'm going to give the edge slightly to the Chargers. If I had to say, I think they win this one like maybe like 24 to 20. I think this could be fairly close. It's going to be a one-possession game in my book, but I just like where the Chargers are going. They had the momentum off of that win from the Vegas game just a couple of days ago, and I think it continues to roll for them. I see them being 4-1 and one, uh, after week five is all said and done. So I'm going to agree to a certain extent. I also have the Chargers winning, but similar to the last segment where you said it came, it comes down to two teams, which is going to be LA's offense versus the Browns defense. And I know that that sounds redundant, but we're literally talking about Miles Garrett versus Justin Herbert, Jadavion Clowney versus Justin Herbert. Can that pass rush really affect Justin's ability to throw the football? And when you really look at some of the previous teams that have played against the Chargers, None of them have really had a predominant pass rusher like Miles Garrett or Jadavion Clowney. Dallas, not necessarily, if anything. Um, obviously, you had Oakland, or excuse me, Vegas last week. Not really anything there. And then you go to the week before that, and we're talking, uh, oh, my God, I'm drawing a blank on who the Chargers played this year. Oh, the Chiefs. They obviously will have no pass rush. So I really do think this is going to be probably their toughest test, at least opponent-wise on the opposite side of the field. Because the Browns have the ability to get to the quarterback and force some turnovers, their secondary is not bad. Uh, And Baker is going through that torn labrum. I don't know how significant that's going to be able to hold him. So I don't know if that ground game is going to be able to carry them throughout the entire game. We all know that, let's be honest, 
Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt are probably the best one-two punch in terms of running backs in the NFL. We got the in-between the tackles power running of Nick Chubb, and then we have the shifty, elusive back on third down and can also run between the tackles in Kareem Hunt. Let's not forget what Kareem Hunt did in Kansas City, so he is definitely no backup. They have literally two bona fide NFL starters running the ball every other series for each other, and they they look to be unstoppable. And realistically, they're, the running offense for the Browns seems to be just on a whole nother level. So I want to say that the Chargers will win this game a little bit on the close side, like Kyle said. I don't know about 24 to 20. I would probably say that L.A. kind of edges them out by a touchdown just because I'm just leaning towards Baker's injury. They might have to load the box up to stop the run game because they don't necessarily have a lot of targets on the offensive end outside of Odell Beckham while Jarvis is hurt. We all know that Cleveland doesn't really utilize the tight end position as much as they should when they have David and Joku and they have Austin Hooper. So you kind of look at it like uh, a very odd game. I mean, for whatever reason, if L.A. does allow Baker to go off, I think that Nick Chubb is going to end up benefiting as well as Kareem Hunt. So this game could end up being similar to a shootout, but I think that the Chargers defense is being slept on this season overall. Uh, You have Joey Bosa, obviously you have Asante Samuel Jr. and, and Derwin James. They're playing out of their mind in that secondary. So I'm going to actually go with a touchdown lead. I think the Chargers win this game by seven. I want to say by the score of maybe 35-28. I don't know if it even goes that high, maybe 28-21, 28-24. Something in that magnitude, I really, really do believe that both teams are playing effectively and doing very well this season. So one of them has to come out 4-1, and one, and one of them is going to be a bona fide leader in the division this week. I think one X factor that we have to mention is Austin Eckler. And I think he's going to be utilized extensively to counteract that pass rush that Cleveland has. I mean, last week against Vegas, he was sensational. He had over 140 scrimmage yards. He had a touchdown uh, from receiving and he had a rushing touchdown as well. And I think if, if LA plays this smart, that they utilize him to the fullest potential possible, because if that pass rush is really getting home against Justin, all they could probably do is maybe run like some slip screens, get him out of the backfield on maybe like some wheel routes. I think that could be one way that they could counteract that pass rush. And I think if they're smart, that they definitely throw that in the playbook going into this week. I definitely see Austin Eckler having a big game to go along with, you know, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams. Hell, even maybe Jared Cook could get into the mix. He had a relatively good game. Against the Raiders last week, he had like six catches for 70 yards and a touchdown as well. So the Chargers are not short of weapons here. They have good targets at the running back spot, the tight end spot, and the wide receiver spot. It's just where can Justin fit the ball, and it just depends on who's open. But he does have a pretty solid array of targets, and I definitely see him getting the edge in this matchup simply just because I can't trust Baker with that injury to his labor. I mean, they struggled, yeah. against the, they struggled against the Vikings last week, and the Vikings don't necessarily have the best defense to work with. And only scoring 14 points in the process, granted they did get the win, there is some cause of concern for that. You know, I don't know if I'm going to go as far as you did, saying that the Browns are going to score 28 points. That might be a little high. But, yeah, a 24-21, 24-20, that's where I kind of see this game going. I just don't have a lot of faith in Cleveland's offense to produce in a big way that's going to get them this win. Yeah, and uh, guys, I apologize if I don't seem focused. It looks like Russell, oh, the Rams just blocked a punt. 
And the wow, what the oh god, and the Seahawks got it back, and he still punted the ball 60 yards down the field. I don't know if they could be able to do that though. Why not? He was behind the line of scrimmage. Did it it get blocked first? It got blocked. I'm waiting for the flag to pop up here. I want to see what the referee said. I've never seen such a thing. It bounced literally right back into the punter's hands. He had to roll out and go get it. Holy, what's the call, ref? What they call? I have mine on mute because it's loud. Oh, it bounced off to the side. That was a bro. That was an excellent scoop. That's what I'm saying. Oh, and oh, it spun. It spun perfectly. Honestly, that scoop. I mean, granted, that punt was phenomenal. The the fact that he kicked it from his own ten yard line and got it to the other ten. That's wow. But but dude, that scoop, bro. That scoop was crazy. Play of the game by far. Don't care what the result is. That is hard as hell to do. I don't um, know if they guys, could do that though. I don't know if they could do that. Well, before the ruling comes out, guys, I was distracted because it looks like Russell Wilson hurt his finger. I don't know if it's broken or if it's a torn ligament, but it looks like they have taped it up severely to the point where it looks like it's clearly affecting Russell's ability to throw. And obviously, prior to that in the series, oh, he was past the line. He was past the line of scrimmage. That's why. Oh, I didn't see that. But, yeah, guys, both quarterbacks are hurt, and both quarterbacks hurt their throwing hands. It looks like Russell's is a little bit more significant, so we will mm-hmm. keep you updated on that. Yeah, and This, um, is, a, this wow. is a good game. Like you got Tyler the, Higby can... scored. Tyler Higby? Oh, he scored the – oh, yeah, he scored the touchdown. I have him on my bench. Oh, I started him. I started him. I knew Jared, I knew Jared Cook wasn't going to have another game like he did last week. Jared Cook? Yeah, I have Jared Cook. That would have been a good game to have him, bro. You, who knows? Who knows? But I um, figured that I figured that Tyler would do his thing. But guys, we have another game slated. Kyle, what's next on the agenda? All right. So up next, we got the Green Bay Packers going up against the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, just to kind of give you guys the rundown for both teams going into this matchup, uh, Green Bay is currently sitting at three and one. They're a three-game winning streak. I mean, after that debacle against the New Orleans Saints in Week One, they have really turned it on. Aaron Rodgers has been phenomenal. He's been hooking it up with Devontae Adams. Aaron Jones has been a beast out of the backfield. And they are currently sitting at the top of the division in the, a- in the not the AFC, in the NFC North. And then to kick it over to Cincinnati, who's been probably one of the biggest surprises that we've seen in the NFL this year. They are currently sitting at 3-1. and one. They're in a three-way tie atop the AFC North with the Cleveland Browns and the Baltimore Ravens. And they are coming off of a win... They played the Jacksonville Jaguars last week. It was a Thursday night game, if, if I remember correctly. Uh, they won that matchup against Jacksonville. And, Kevin, it does set up a phenomenal game. Kevin, w- w- what have you seen? The, 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 the punt counted. <laughs> oh, it did? Pat McAfee just went live on Twitter and quoted it. Most athletic punt of all time. Bro, they, they're going to put that dude in the Hall of Fame. Dude, it counted. I can't believe this counted, guys. I'm so sorry if you're not watching this game or did not watch that highlight by this time tomorrow morning. Yo, I've never – you guys have to look at it. You have to see punt from Seattle punter uh, last night on fourth. Holy shit, that was incredible. He sent it from the 21, and it rolled all the way to the 11-yard line on the opposite side. Phenomenal punt. But um, to continue in terms of the podcast, we have to stay on track. Uh, this game is going to be one for – it's going to be an interesting one. I mean, overall, wow, Cooper Cup caught that. Holy shit. 
Um, I need to turn this off because I'm just getting distracted, even though I have fantasy implications in this game. So I did close it. Sorry, guys. Um, you want me to set it up for you? I, I, no, 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 no. I got it. I got it. I got it. So the Cincinnati Bengals and the Green Bay Packers. We're talking about Aaron Rodgers versus Joe Burrow. Obviously, the Packers did just acquire Jalen Smith from the Cowboys and, so, and uh, the, the sudden kind of cutting of Jalen. I mean, like, I didn't really hear yeah. too much about it. I know that they tried to uh, – I know that they tried to trade him, but there were no offers, and they, they just picked him up. Obviously, the Packers could use some depth at the linebacker position. But overall, we're looking at Aaron Rodgers versus Joe Burrow and the shocking Cincinnati Bengals at 3-1. and one. And I, I really want to touch here – on Cincinnati's ability to score the football or, or score in general because man, they're doing it on, on, on multiple sides. I mean, Joe's throwing touchdowns. Joe Mixon's playing a part. And, and I just think that the acquisition, or should I say the drafting of Jamar Chase has suddenly, has so far panned out better than I would have thought. Um, Joe Burrow's doing what he needs to do. I mean, the speech he gave last week on Thursday night really speaks volume about this team and his veteran leadership. And he's literally in his second year He's coming up to his – he hasn't even played a total of 16 games. He was hurt in week 10 of last season. So he played nine and a half games. This year, we're going into week five. So we're at a total of 15 – he hasn't even played a full season in the NFL. He's got a captain's patch with two stars, and he's already breaking down the huddle and getting the team hyped before games. The presence that this kid brings into a locker room and the ability to want to follow him to war – and run through a brick wall for him is something that needs to be addressed. The entire team respects him, and they love him. The offensive line obviously isn't much better than it was last year, but I see that Zach Taylor has adjusted this playbook to where they're either settling with max protection or they're just getting the ball out a lot faster because this offense is scoring, I don't want to say at will, but they're scoring at a higher pace and clip than they were last year, and I think that that makes a big difference. The defense is playing solid football. I would say probably an, an NFL average. They're not bad and they're not phenomenal. So this is a very good and well-rounded team. This is going to be their first really, really big test. I know that some would say that was probably Pittsburgh last week or uh, two weeks ago, but we all know that this isn't the same Pittsburgh team that we've been seeing over the past couple of years. So I would say this is definitely Joe Burrow's first test against a really uh, tough opponent. And if I'm reading this correctly, I believe Cincinnati is actually going to be home so you don't even have to worry about the weather implications if there are any at Green Bay, you know, the freezing tundra that is Lambeau Field. But overall, I don't necessarily know if that's going to be enough to compete with the former MVP in Aaron Rodgers. Um, obviously, the Packers are on an absolute demolishing t- tyrant of the NFL since they were agitated and embarrassed in week one against the New Orleans Saints. So I would say Joe Burrow fights this tough he probably has a couple of turnovers, maybe a pick or two. Um, he does have to really go up against uh, Jair Alexander, who is probably one of the better corners in the NFL. I don't necessarily know if they've had a corner, at least you know, personnel-wise, that they've gone up against that could really change the dynamic of a game. Uh, but the issue is I do not know if the Packers are going to be able to get to Joe Burrow. So this is a really good offsetting kind of prediction because you have Aaron Rodgers on one side, and I don't know if Cincinnati's defense can stop him. And then on the other side, aside from the addition of Jalen Smith and the presence of Jair Alexander, I don't know if that defense is going to be able to stop the surging Bengals right now. So if I had to give a prediction, 
I'm probably just predicting Green Bay just because I don't think anybody can guard Devontae Adams in the NFL in general. So I do think that they do connect on a touchdown or two between Aaron Rodgers and, and, and uh, Devontae. So I'll probably predict this to be about a 10-point win for Green Bay, maybe around 35 to 24 of some sort. I think Cincinnati uh, gets, behind the, uh, gets behind the eight ball a little early. They probably have a couple of turnovers in the beginning. They may rally towards the middle, if not the end of the game, but it's just going to be too late. I don't know if Green Bay's offense will be stopped. Oh, this is an easy one for me. I think the Packers get this one easy. I think the Packers win this one by 10 plus just because Cincinnati is relatively young when it comes to experience and they've had a very good start to the season. You know, granted they're three and one and it seems like a lot of momentum is definitely riding with the young kid in Joe Burrow and Joe Burrow, you know, despite the fact that he had a shortened season last year due to his torn ACL, he's played relatively well this year in his well it's legitimately his second year but he he hasn't played a full season like you mentioned but he's been impressive but not as impressive as Aaron Rodgers Aaron Rodgers you know outside of that week one loss to the Saints he hasn't thrown an interception since he had four touchdowns against the Lions in week two he followed that up against the 49ers with two touchdowns and essentially the game-winning drive that set up Mason Crosby for that 50 plus yard game-winning field goal and then against the Steelers last, last week, and the Steelers, despite how bad they are offensively, still have a relatively good defense. He was still able to get it done through for 250 yards and two touchdowns. And I don't think that Cincinnati's defense is in any way, shape, or form better than what the Steelers currently have, despite how bad their offense is. And I think that Aaron Rodgers is going to be able to light up this defense. Granted, they are the road team, so they may face a little bit of a stiffer challenge within maybe like the first quarter or two. But I think in the second half, I just think that Green Bay opens it up. They get the second half adjustments that they need. And I hate to kind of put it in this way, but I think they take the young kid to school in Joe Burrow. I think this is going to be one of those games where this is a learning experience for Joe Burrow, but it's, it'll be a good one just because you're going up against arguably one of the best quarterbacks that we've seen in this generation, specifically really within like the last 10 years or so. And I just think that connection with Devontae Adams is just too much to handle. I can see Devontae Adams potentially getting 10 to 15 targets in this game, potentially getting 10 receptions, getting over 100 yards receiving. And I just don't know how Cincinnati is going to be able to handle the offensive firepower that Aaron Rodgers and that Green Bay offenses produce, that offense produces. And I'm not even talking about Aaron Jones yet. And Aaron Jones didn't necessarily have the best game against the Steelers. So I think they have a bounce back game with him. I could definitely see him popping off for a hundred yards rushing. I just think that the offense from Green Bay is going to be too explosive for Cincinnati to ha handle. And I see, I see the Packers winning this one, maybe like 34, 24, just because that bad man and Aaron Rodgers, I think he's going to be able to get it done. And I think this will be a very good learning experience for Joe Burrow and that young Cincinnati team. But I think they do kind of have a comeback down to earth game. And um, I think when it's all said and done, I think the Packers moved to four and one and the Bengals dropped to three and two after week four, excuse me, week five. Update. Russell's out of the game. Yeah, I saw that. Wow. Geno Smith is in the game. The former West Virginia star slash New York jet slash God knows wherever else he's been. No one really cares. He is in the football game. Russell still has his helmet on, so who knows if he's still going to be able to play. But overall, 
Seems like broke, Russell's night may be done. What if he broke a finger? I, I thought it was broken because we're talking – it was his throwing hand, either his middle finger or his ring finger, and it looked to be bent completely down to the point where I thought it was maybe like a Kobe thing where he like popped Dislocate. it out of the sock Dislocate. and dislocated Dislocate. But they couldn't get it back in, and then they taped it, and then they kind of loaded it with a kind of like wrap to try to straighten it out. But I would assume that's very discomforting for a quarterback, obviously, when the majority of your throw, we're talking the middle two of your fingers. So it's probably bad if he's not in this game knowing that they're down almost uh, – I can't do math. It seems like they're down two scores. So we will see what happens as the game – oh, my God, DK Metcalf just shook the shit out of multiple defenders. Wow. Holy shit, guys. Super athletic. But – that does put us into our next topic. Guys, we are going to be talking about our most – what's the word I'm looking for? You have the, the synonyms and the acronyms. What, what, what are we talking about here? Uh, we're going to go over the biggest surprises that we've seen in the NFL within the first month so far. So it'll be very simple. Like We're going to go over not only our surprises, but we're going to go over our disappointments uh, later on. But we're going to start with our surprises. And, Kevin, I'll keep this one to you. Uh, who do you think has been the biggest surprise – in the NFL within the first month of the season. I'm just, I'm, we just talked about them last last segment. I, dude, the Cincinnati Bengals are three and one. Are you kidding me? We thought the second this season started, Joe Burrow would be knocked out of the game all over again, or they would be one of the worst teams in the league. And they're one of the best teams in the AFC. I mean, they have the same record as the Buffalo Bills, for God's sakes. Like, that's, this speaks a lot of volume to a team that has not been able to protect their franchise quarterback. People made the argument, and the, including myself, and the point that not drafting the offensive lineman out of Oregon instead taking Jamar Chase is probably going to be the biggest mistake of the Cincinnati Bengals' existence because this could turn into Joe Burrow getting knocked out of the game, if not getting knocked out for the season once again. But the connection between Jamar Chase and, and Joe Burrow has been an unstoppable. I mean, obviously Tyler Boyd is still the number one target, and T. Higgins, when he gets back from his injury – that's a three-headed monster in the receiving room. And then, obviously, C.J. Uzma. I always forget how to pronounce his name, but it's, he's it's like come Uzuma. out of his, It's like Uzma or something. He's come out of his shell, and he has, like, three or four touchdowns on the season already. I mean, I know he scored two uh, against Jacksonville, and that doesn't really speak much value. But overall, I mean, Joe Mixon's playing good. The defense is playing solid. And, again, this is going to be the biggest test of the season for the Bengals. But – for sure, at this very moment in the year, this is going to be for sure for me the biggest surprise of the year because I definitely didn't see this coming. I'm going to kick it over to the NFC, and I, I literally can't believe I'm uttering this out of my mouth here. I got to go with the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys have been outright phenomenal this year. I mean, outside of that week one game, they've been great. Dak Prescott coming off of that gruesome leg injury that he had last year honestly looks better than he did before the injury and he's been efficient while throwing the ball he hasn't turned the ball over on a consistent basis and not only is Dallas getting good production from Dak they are getting phenomenal production from the run game I mean Ezekiel Elliott looks like he is reinvigorated to kind of put a term on it and you have Tony you have uh, you have Pollard right behind him, kind of forming a thunder-lightning combo. Like, these dudes are on another level. And the biggest unsung hero of Dallas's offense is probably their offensive line because they could just sit they could just sit there and protect Dak. And not only that, they could open up run lanes for Zeke and Tony Pollard. So 
when I look at the offense, they're humming on all cylinders. They are putting up at least 25, 30 points consistently. And then you kick it to the defense. Even though that the defense has been giving up a lot of passing yards, I think they're like second worst in the league when it comes to allowing passing yards. They're turning the ball over. Trayvon Diggs, within the first four weeks of the season, has five interceptions already. He is on pace to probably get double-digit interceptions. And they are getting pressure on quarterbacks. When they faced Brady in the first week, they were able to get two or three sacks. Last week, against the Carolina Panthers, they were able to get pressure. I believe they got like five sacks against Sam Darnold in that offense in Carolina. And Carolina was coming was coming into that game undefeated at 3-0. So Dallas has got off to a very hot start. They look like they are clearly the best team in the NFC East at this point, And it's a far cry from what they were last year. And I think it could be said that Dallas is not only one of the best teams in the NFC, but they're currently, in my opinion, a top 10, arguably a top five team in the NFL. And it's really due to what not only the offense has been able to produce, but the defense, which has been shaky to say the least, they're able to get turnovers and they're giving the ball back to Dak and they're getting points in the process. And Dallas has just been sensational. So I got to give it up to them. They've earned it. And they are my biggest surprise through the first month of the NFL season so far. You saw that, right? Geno Smith. Just, yeah. First possession. Yeah, he just went, he yeah. just mowed down the field and went five for five and threw a touch, a strike to DK Metcalf. I haven't no. seen Geno Smith active on an NFL roster outside from holding a clipboard in like five years. Mm-hmm. That boy Russell Wilson is rubbing off on him because he looked lights out on that damn on that drive. We got ourselves a game. It is sixteen to fourteen, guys. We got plenty of time and content left in terms of this episode ending, so we're going to get you a final here because this this game is looking incredible. But that leads us into our biggest disappointments of the year thus far, Kyle. I have a question for you. Obviously, that's going to be what are you, what, what team is your biggest disappointment thus far? It's the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Steelers have been just outright bad. And I'm kind of being nice in that regard, just because when I watch the Pittsburgh Steelers, it hurts to watch them, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Big Ben at this point in his career is basically hanging on by a thread. And Big Ben has always been kind of known as one of the tougher quarterbacks in the league, simply just because he was one of the toughest quarterbacks to bring down as far as like opposing defenses, getting a pass rush on him and he could take hits. And I remember Kevin, you mentioned just a couple of days ago, like he, you think that he's like one of the like last warrior quarterbacks that remains in the league. And I fully agree with that. It's just, it seems like those hits are starting to rack up on him and the injuries are starting to mount. And he's just at the age where he just can't take those hits anymore. And it's definitely affecting his play. He's just been struggling to say the obvious. And it's having an impact on the entire team because defensively, they have to account for the inability of the Steelers' offense to be able to produce points in a big way. And, I mean, outside of the one win they had against Buffalo, they've lost three straight games they're in a situation where they're playing the 49ers this week 
and it's week five. And this is a must win game for the Steelers because if they don't win this game, there's a very good chance that their season might be over by week five. Granted, it would only be week five, but you're sitting at one and four. You have no momentum to work off of whatsoever. You have a quarterback that is basically looking like on retirement at this point. And you have a defense out there that's relatively good, but it's just getting gassed because of what the offense can't produce in regards to what Big Ben, Najee Harris, Juju Smith-Schuster, and Deontay Johnson can produce. So I don't want to say that their season is over, but if they don't win this 49ers game, it'd be hard-pressed to tell me anything different than their season might be over. It's just, I have to see some sort of spark from this team and I have yet to see it. And it's just kind of unfortunate to see that this is where I think Big Ben's last season is potentially going. Because if they don't get this straightened out sooner rather than later, Pittsburgh could be looking at a situation where they're a top five draft pick, a top 10 draft pick by the end of the year. You know, I don't want to say that they're going to be like, you know, the dumpster fire team in the AFC where they go like three and 14 or two and 15. But they haven't shown me anything to say that, yeah, this team is headed in the right direction. In fact, it's the the opposite. So unless the Steelers can turn it around sooner rather than later, I think they're in real trouble. And they're definitely my biggest disappointment. So, Kevin, I'll kick it to you. Who's your biggest disappointment through the first month of the season? So I've been torn on this decision since before we've even started the episode. Kyle and I discussed an agenda just a bit ago, obviously earlier today, in terms of what to talk about. But there's a lot of teams I'm really sitting there kind of really shocked. I mean, the Minnesota Vikings are one of them. The Miami Dolphins are another one. I mean, it's, if I had to really pick one, I would have to probably go with the Minnesota Vikings. I mean, Kirk Cousins has nine touchdowns, one interception, and almost 1,200 yards in just four games. The man is absolutely dicing the league up. And he's been one of the most inconsistent quarterbacks in the NFL up to this point in his career. There's games he's got four touchdowns. There's games he has three picks. There's games he has two touchdowns. There's games he has two fumbles and an interception. So the point of the matter is, a guy that has literally been up and down for the majority of his career, since he's gotten to Minnesota, has been pretty much a letdown because he hasn't been able to lead them into the postseason and win consistently, if not win at all. And... Dude, he's doing what he needs to do, and, and you, you lead by example, and I mean, he's literally leading by the best example that he can, and for the first two or three weeks, the Vikings lost by like less than a total of like 14 points in all of their games. I mean, for God's sakes, they lost another close one, seven points last week to the Browns, or to the, what, to the Browns, to the Bears? Which one was it? It was to the Browns. So... It's not that the defense isn't playing good, and it's not that the offense isn't either because we're talking single-digit losses every game this year, and the offense is moving the football. Granted, Dalvin Cook missed a game or two already thus far this year, but even his backups are producing efficiently. So I don't know necessarily what to blame it on because when you look at the defensive consistency of the Vikings and the offensive output, this doesn't equal the formula to be one and three. And... I'm almost in shock because I didn't expect them to be this good, but their record does not reflect the talent that this team has and brings to the table. Justin Jefferson, Irv Smith at the tight end position kind of came out of left field. Um, Adam Thielen, Dalvin Cook, and now Kirk Cousins finally seems like it's clicking in this offense. 
Dude, I'm in shock. There's no way. I'm not saying they should be freaking like four and zero, oh, but they definitely should be two and two. Uh, uh, excuse me, three and one, if not minimum two and two. There's no shot they should be one and three, and that's why I think they've been the most disappointing team because their record doesn't reflect their skill set. It's their defense. Their defense has been bad. It was not only bad this year, but it was bad last year too. So it's just, you know, granted they did have a better performance against the Browns in week four, but the offense. Their did- worst defensive output was against the Seahawks in a win. They gave up 17 points. They were, they were a one point. They were literally, they lost by one point to the Cardinals. Granted, that was a shootout. That was both sides not scoring. The Bengals went into overtime. That's three points. Dude, the defense is playing fine. Like, I get it. The, the Cardinals game was atrocious. That's, but both defenses played bad. We're literally talking a combined total. Uh, I don't understand, like, how this is possible. 27-24, loss in OT. 34-33, to 33, a one-point loss to Arizona. They win in Seattle, or, uh, excuse me, at home against Seattle, 30-17. to 17. And then they lose to Cleveland at home. It's 14 to 7. 14 points all week? I mean, all day against the Browns? 30, uh, 17 points against a Seattle team? I, I, think, I don't think it's the defense. I just genuinely think the ball's just not falling in their court. Dude, the first two weeks, it's a total of fucking four points. It's just how it goes, though. But it's, it, it's just. It's how it's the how cookie it, crumbles. Yeah, it's just. It's just wherever Kirk Cousins goes, it's just success just fails to follow. You know, I have a couple flash moments here and there, but it's just, there's just nothing consistent to build upon. And and the Vikings, I will say this, I think, I think that they're a better team than what their record records or like what they actually are. But it's just, they just can't seem to get consistent winning. With Kirk at the helm. I'm not saying that they need to replace Kirk Cousins at this point. It's just, it's kind of just odd to see this team be able to put the numbers that they can put up on the offensive side of the board. But it just doesn't result in wins on a consistent basis. So I think the word that I was looking for is like their record doesn't reflect what they actually are. That's what I was trying to say. But, you know, if the Vikings you know, going up against the Packers in the NFC North. I mean, that's a very tall task. And I think it's safe to say that the Vikings have been had in that series against the Packers for what? Like the last five to six years, if not more. Yeah, that 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 has not been a good matchup for them. I mean, I believe they may have won maybe one when they had that year with the uh, the miracle with Case, uh, Case Keenum. They had like maybe, I think they beat Green Bay twice that year. Yeah, but it's just... It's just not on a consistent basis. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, I think w- w- when you look at both teams, though, like that we've picked, I think Pittsburgh's just a bad team on one half. I think they're fine on one half. It's just that the offense can't produce. And sometimes that's just how it goes. Sometimes you have a team that's just bad on all fronts where the, the offense is bad and the defense is bad. I don't believe that to be the case with the Steelers. The Steelers have a good defensive squad. They just don't have the offense to be to produce, and it's kind of crazy that just a couple of years ago, like this team was like lighting up, lighting it up offensively. You know, you had Antonio Brown, Juju Smith-Schuster, and Le'Veon Bell, and then within literally two to three years after those guys depart, except for Juju, 
they just don't have the same firepower anymore. I mean, people do tend to forget, like, this team did start 11-0 and last year. And then they completely fell apart at the end of the season. And it seems like it's continued on from that point. But, you know, obviously, you know, when it comes to the teams that are disappointments, um, the Steelers definitely rank up among them. The Vikings do as well. I mean, there's some other teams out there like the Jaguars, but I mean, that's not really surprising. That's just, it's just a matter of fact at this point that the Jaguars are just like a bad team. But Kevin, do you have an update for this uh, Thursday night game going on? Yeah, update. Uh, The Rams go down the field and they score with Sony Michelle running the ball in for a touchdown. We are looking at 23 to 14. Seattle has got the ball back with about six minutes and some change to go. We will see if Geno Smith can lead the Seattle offense down the field once again. But again, that is yet to be determined. The Rams actually just kicked the ball out of bounds on the kickoff. So the the second time. The Seahawks Seahawks start the drive at the 40. Oh, and Geno's still in. Yep, Russell's not coming back, bro. That that finger injury looks to be pretty serious. Oh, fingers can be tricky, bro. It's your throwing hand, bro. Are you kidding me? It's not even a a joke. Oh, a keeper. Geno still got some wheels like that? Okay. You know what the Rams does? This is is kind of an interesting scenario with the Rams because, you know, the couple days that they've been preparing for this game, it had all probably been in regards to Russ. They probably haven't had a lot of tape to work with with Geno because – when was the last time that Juno actually started or even played like a decent amount of snaps? You're talking about going back in the realm of four to five years ago with probably the Jets. Yeah, more than likely or some preseason reps. But again, that doesn't really count in terms of tape. That's a great ball to Tyler Lockett. Wow, he is sitting in the pocket. He looks great. Guys, we will continue to keep you updated, but we do have a couple of more topics to get to right before we uh, kind of deep dive into this game. I mean, the clock is still running. There's still just just above five minutes to go so it'll probably end before we actually finish the episode um we're going to get into the alds prediction and an al uh excuse me and an nlds i mean we're actually forgetting what's funny we're so focused on the rays and red sox and giants and dodgers we're forgetting there are still two other series that are happening in both sides of the playoffs in the chicago white sox and the houston astros and the atlanta braves and I don't even know who they're playing. Like, that's the sad part. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I'm still looking here like, wait a minute. Who the hell is the other team in the NL? And that is the Milwaukee Brewers. I am so sorry for forgetting these things because today's just not my day. But let's just start with the Red Sox and the the Rays because I don't really give a shit about the the Braves and the Brewers. and I don't care about anything else that isn't the the two series that I named. (laughs) Um, Guys, overall... We're looking at two teams that have been atop the AL East, obviously competing with my Yankees for the last three to five years. And the Rays were the best team in the American League record-wise. And oh, you know what? Let me not even say that because the Ash. No, I am. I was right. I don't know why I doubt myself. Uh, the Rays had the best record in the AL. And obviously Boston's coming off a very convincing win against the Yankees on Tuesday night. Currently, the Rays sit at 5-0 to zero in Game 1 at the top of the eighth inning. I believe the bases are loaded right now for the Red Sox, so this game could get blown open. If not, this could be a little bit more competitive in just a few. We will see. I hope not. But, guys, it, it pains me to really talk about this because it should be the Yankees and the Rays, but, you know, I'm taking the bias out of it, and I'm trying to make a fair prediction here. Let me just be blunt 
and say that the Rays have been probably the most consistent team in baseball right next to the Los Angeles Dodgers over the last three years because they just find ways to win baseball games. When you think of the Tampa Bay Rays, you do not think of an Aaron Judge, a Giancarlo Stanton, a freaking J.D. Martinez. They don't necessarily have a big name on this roster, and that goes to show why they're one of the lowest overall payout teams in the the MLB. They literally do not have an expensive roster hit. They don't have a big cap on their roster. They don't spend a lot of money. They just have marquee players that play efficient, and they play very well together. Their pitching staff is solid. Their on-base percentage is solid. They know how to put the ball in play and have clutch hits. But they're just a very well-rounded team. Hey, the Red Sox failed to score with the bases loaded. Gotta love it. Oh, it's so weird cheering for another AL East team, but God knows I just hate the Red Sox that much. Um, as a Yankee fan who has faced the Rays, or, you know, watched the Yankees face the Rays the majority of the year, they had our number all season. They've had our number for the last two, three years, and they just consistently know how to win. Kevin Cash is a great manager. He knows how to properly manage a situation rather than certain people who will not be named, God willing, who will be unemployed in the next week. But I'm going to get into that later. I had to control myself. I apologize for embarrassing my co-host. The point of the matter is, the Rays know how to do it. The late season acquisition of Nelson Cruz adds some depth in terms of the power hitter at the DH position, which is great for them, which is something that they were lacking. But overall, the Tampa Bay Rays are no team to be doubted. They're no team to be trifled with. And it just goes to show when you consistently win the way you have been and have a team that's just well-rounded completely. And I mean, literally starting pitching, I would say their bullpen's probably one of their weakest attributes they don't necessarily have a dominant bullpen like a specific team in the MLB does but the Rays just almost are the complete package and it just goes to show you don't need to spend a lot of money to have a good team and if I had to bet I would probably lean towards the Tampa Bay Rays winning this series I don't know the exact series in total because I know the ALDS is best of five I think Mm -hmm. right yeah so it's best of five um, I'd probably say they win this maybe three to one. I think they end this in four just because I do think that the Tampa Bay Rays just have that good of a team and they're the best team in the AL for a reason. So I say that obviously after tonight's win, I think they got, they got two more to go. And, uh, I think that the Rays take the series. Yeah. I mean, to, to focus on the series here, I would probably say that Tampa has the advantage in this series over the Red Sox. And there's a few stats that I want to pull up. I'm going to start with their pitching. So when I look at the amount of earned runs that they've given up compared to the entire spectrum of the MLB, the Rays are a top five team in regards to earned runs allowed. And when that pitching staff, granted, I don't know too many of the pitchers off the top of my head with Tampa Bay Rays, but the fact of the matter is, is that the stats reflect just how good this team is when it comes to their pitching, not only at the starting rotation, but on the back end as well. When you look at the scenario of them being a top four team with a 3.67 ERA, and then you compare that with the Red Sox, I'm actually going to scroll down and see where the Red Sox in regards to their earned run averages for their pitching staff is. The Red Sox have a 4.26 ERA. So you're talking about basically a full run difference between both teams in regards to the amount of runs that they give up to opposing teams. So the advantage there obviously sides with the Rays. 
And then the focus on hitting. This is one of the things that really kind of surprised me when I was looking it up earlier. The Rays are like a top 10 or like a top five team in most of the major statistical categories in regards to hitting. So if you look at their batting average, I'll focus on this real quick. They are, I believe that they are top 10 or top 15 in regards to batting average. They have a 242 batting average and the best was Houston at 267. So I guess they're middle in the pack there, but their on base percentage is, I believe it is just outside the top 10. They are right behind the San Diego Padres and the New York Yankees who aren't even in the playoffs anymore. Their slugging percentage is pretty solid. They're top 10, I believe they're eighth. And then if you look at their on base plus slugging percentage, they are also in the top 10. So the numbers don't really shout out that, oh my God, this team is just amazing as far as like smacking home runs that they're going to just put out like these big highlight plays that everybody sees on social media. But it shows me that they are a model of consistency. And they have been one of the most consistent teams, not only in the AL, but in the MLB for not just this season, but for years going on now. And one does kind of beg the question, at what point does this team take that next level as far as taking that next step? And I think this is a very good opportunity for them. They're going up against a Boston team that is very solid. They're coming in with the momentum after beating the Yankees just a couple of days ago. But to me, as far as far as the Red Sox are, or like as how good they can be, I just don't think that they're as good as the Rays. I think the Rays are just a more complete team. And Kevin, I'm going to agree with you. I think this series gets wrapped up in four. I, I do think that they win this one 3-1. I would actually be kind of shocked if this series goes to 3-2, just because I think the Rays, they're a solid team. And I do think that there's a very good chance that they can make it to the World Series this year. I think that the cards are in it for them this year. And it would just be kind of nuts that you have literally all three teams from Tampa, which include the Buccaneers, the oh Lions, my God. and the Here Rays, go potentially going for a city of champions within like the last year or so. So that would be kind of just nuts to kind of see that scenario play out. But the Rays are not to be trifled with here. This is a good team. And I think the Boston Red Sox are currently taking them head on. I mean, they're down five, nothing currently in game one, but I think the Rays, I think the Rays are set up for not just an ACL an ALCS appearance. I think they're set up for a world series appearance. Hey man, we all know that they love to celebrate AL championships like they've won the World Series. So hey, kudos to them if they make it to the World Series again. I mean, if they end up doing what they did last year, that's great for them. Oh my oh, Geno Smith almost threw a dime to freaking Tyler Lockett. Um kudos to the Rays if they do it again. You gotta capitalize and win a World Series championship before you can start crowning anybody anything. So we'll see how that series pans out. The next series is the real series that I'm really hyped about. And I know that the majority of baseball fans, I know that Kyle and I have been basically been talking about it all year. This matchup is the two best teams in the, in the MLB. They're division rivals, and they play each other in the NLDS. Not the CS, the first round. And apparently this is the first time they've ever played against each other in the NLDS in history. So the San Francisco Giants led the MLB in terms of the best record in baseball at 107 wins, and the Dodgers were right behind them at 106 wins. So, Kyle, I'm throwing this right at you, man. 
what the hell do we have to predict in a series like this? It's so unfortunate this can't go seven because I want to watch as many of these games as I can. I mean, honestly, this this would have been a great World Series matchup had they been in just different uh, in different leagues. Just because when when I was watching the the Dodgers play the Cardinals last night in the um, in the wild card round, uh, the one thing that stood out to me is. Despite the fact that Max Scherzer didn't necessarily have the best night pitching, he was still sensational. Meaning, he couldn't, he didn't have a lot of pitch control. He was having issues kind of painting certain parts of the plate, but he only gave up one earned run against the Cardinals. And then right after that, you had Joe Kelly come into kind of a dicey situation where I think they had a man, they had a runner on first and second base. And Joe Kelly just lights him up. And it gets the Cardinals out of that inning and it gets the Dodgers into the second half of that inning. I forget which inning it was in particular, but I mean, when I look at this team in the Dodgers, the Dodgers have just been one of the most consistent teams in the majors for years on end now. And, you know, despite the fact that they didn't necessarily light it up against the Cardinals in the NL wild card round, I still think that this team is going to be an absolute nightmare for the San Francisco Giants. And that's saying something because, I mean, the Giants should have all the confidence in the world knowing that they won the NL West, you know, at the end of the season. I mean, going 107 wins, they had to earn every single one of those wins because the Dodgers were literally nipping at their heels most of the way. And the Giants, look, they've been one team that's been kind of perplexing to me because I think people forget how good San Francisco was just a couple years ago. And you've seen kind of a new crop of players really kind of develop into their own with San Francisco, but the result really remains the same. They just continue to find ways to keep on winning. I mean, when you look at the, the major statistical categories offensively for the San Francisco giants, they're literally top five or top 10 in pretty much most of those categories, like batting average, on base percentage, slugging percentage, you name it. And it kind of goes without saying, but the results are showing. And I think if the Giants just continue what they've been doing for the entire year, I think it's going to bode well for them against the Dodgers. But the Dodgers are just as good as they are. So for me, it is kind of difficult to kind of tell you know, who's going to win this series. I think this series has the potential to go five. I'd actually be shot if it didn't go five, but I'm going to side with the giants here. I think the giants, I think they just have a slight edge over the Dodgers. And that's kind of saying something because I think the Dodgers starting pitching has been phenomenal this year, but I think San Francisco is going to continue that success that they had in the regular season. And it's going to transition smoothly into the playoffs. And I think that, that they're definitely set up for not just, you know, a, a solid NLCS finish. I think they have a real good chance of making making it to the World Series. I just think that that's how good this team is. So, Kevin, I'll kick it to you from here. So, I mean, like Kyle said and already reiterated, we are t- – wow, there goes freaking Henderson. Um, I think that this, this matchup is going to be the best matchup in the entire playoffs. Obviously, we're not just talking about two of the best teams in baseball. We're talking about division rivals. They know each other very well. They've played each other all season long. And 
they know the ins and outs and the pros and cons of each of them, uh, of each phase, obviously, offensively and then on the pitching staff. The Dodgers, however, are unfortunately going through the loss of Clayton Kershaw. He's on the 10-day I.L. And uh, Max Muncie, their first baseman, who almost had a diagnosis of a Tommy John surgery needing to be taken care of or needing to be done. But he just came back, and he's limited uh, in terms of day-to-day. So we will see how the Dodgers are affected from there. I but let's not put- his elbow. It says Max Muncy is day-to-day as of right now on the injury report. They thought he needed Tommy John. Okay. okay. So right now, Max Muncy is listed on day-to-day as of the 5th of October, which was two days ago. So we will see how that pans out. But what we do need to pay attention to on the pitching staff for the Dodgers, outside of Clayton Kershaw, two of their pitchers had 15 win seasons. We had Walker Bueller win 16 games, and Julio Urias had 20 wins. Both pitchers had an ERA under three. Julio had a 2.96, and Walker had a 2.47. So the Dodgers are no scrubs, and by no means are the Dodgers any pushover. I mean, uh, on the other side of the on the uh, other side of the the plate, you obviously have Kevin Guzman going for. The uh, Giants, who also won 14 games and had an ERA under three with 2.81. So the pitching staff for both teams is going to be lights out. I mean, the offense for both, we already know, can be electrifying. Obviously, people know more so of the Dodgers because they have the Mookie Betts. They signed Albert Pujols in the year. They have the Justin Turner and the Mike Muncy. So they're no stranger to electrifying high-scoring baseball games. And I do think that this is going to be a more interesting series, granted, if the Cardinals and the Dodgers would have faced off in this round, I think that would have been interesting as well. But I think this is going to be a tight series because these two teams have played each other so many times this year. So it is very weird when you see yourself playing a division rival in the first round, let alone in the championship round at all. But we're just going to have to see how this pans out because, like we said before, each team is – one game apart from the other and this series I think goes five I want to say I really want to say the Dodgers are going to come out on top just because the Dodgers are the Dodgers and obviously Mookie Betts is playing at an MVP caliber level but we can't disrespect the Giants man the addition of Chris Bryant this year was huge for them obviously locking down a position at third base defensively and bringing another bat to this lineup was huge for them so Dude, this is a toss-up. For once, I can't definitively pick who wins. I don't know. I would not be surprised if either goes. And I know as a podcast host, I'm supposed to give you guys my prediction. This is the only series I've ever been stumped upon because each team has just so much to bring to the table. If I had to pick one, I'd probably say the Dodgers just because they have home field advantage. But I, I really don't know. It's going to be a good one, man. I, if these games weren't so late every single week or every single game, I would watch every one. But we're talking, dude, they're, both teams are in, in California. The first game, first pitch is scheduled for 937. Are you kidding me? The game's going to go till 1 in the morning. I, I got work in the morning. Kyle's got work in the morning. Shit, we don't start recording till damn near 930 every time we, we start an episode. We ain't got time for this. I mean, I might watch one of these games over the weekend, but – Thankfully, tomorrow's Friday, so I might be able to catch the first game. I don't know if I'm going to be able to watch the rest of the series. So the first game might have to indicate everything for me. That's why they got. They, that's why they got YouTube highlights. You can always kind of like circle back to. Not those. enough, man. You know that this series is going to be a good one to watch. 
Well, the, the thing that's going to be kind of interesting, you know, granted, I'm basing this, basing this off of the uh, the Cardinals and Dodgers game, was just how defensively uh, impactful like the pitching can be. Because when you looked at what Max Scherzer was able to do last night, despite the fact that he had kind of struggles with plate, with uh, being able to kind of paint certain areas over the plate, the fact of the matter is, is that they only gave up one run. I mean, that's sensational. And, and basically, in an elimination game, you're going to granted you're playing on your home field, but you only give up one run in the process, and the relievers carry that throughout the entire rest of the game. That's sensational. So I think one of the things that I'm going to be definitely kind of paying attention to is whether or not that the relievers hold up if the Dodgers starting pitching holds up. Because, I mean, we saw, you know, granted this was a completely different series where if the starting pitching goes to shit like it did for New York against Boston, it kind of set the tone for the relievers as well. It'll be kind of interesting to see whether or not that the relievers for both the Dodgers and the Giants can kind of bounce back from what the starting pitching would do if they kind of got off to a bad start. And, you know, just watching that Cardinals game last night, I mean, both pitching staffs were playing phenomenal. I mean, Wainwright looked looked great. I thought Scherzer, despite the fact that he had his issues, he only gave up one run. And even despite the fact that the Cardinals did lose that game, I thought their pitching staff for the relievers was just as good. You know, they gave up the the walk-off, but it's like you have a hanging curveball over the plate. It happens. But I think this Giants-Dodger series, I think it's going to be one for... Kevin, you always say, like, one for the history books. This one could potentially be that, and then Gino Smith just got picked off. Excellent. Wow. That's how it ends? That's kind of upsetting. Damn. Well, typical Geno fashion. That about wraps it up. The Rams will go to four and one, and Seattle falls to two and three. No thanks to Russell. So, who is he going? Uh, oh, we got he hit. fell. He fell. He fell. He, he fell. got hit. Who got hit? Geno? Ty- no, Tyler Lockett was running his route. He got hit. Oh well, I, I closed it up, so I don't really care. It is but, what it is. But Kevin, I, I got to ask you since we're kind of doing this on the fly. Um, what do you think about the Rams right now, sitting at four and one, and Seattle dropping to? Potentially two and three. Dude, the Rams are no joke. The Rams are no team to be trifled with. I know that they had a bad performance last week against Arizona. They will get their second crack against them later this year. So I predict that the Rams are going to be a lot more prepared. Not that they weren't the first time, but this is one of the more electrifying teams in the NFL, let alone in the NFC. Matt Stafford just adds a whole different dynamic. I mean, Robert Woods had the best game of this season so far for himself. Him and Cooper Cup almost had 100 yards apiece. Tyler Higby scored a touchdown in the end zone. Their run game looked absolutely phenomenal. Their defense was able to make stops when it counted most, obviously, right then and there, even though it's against a backup quarterback. They made something happen when it mattered most. So I, I think that they're a real contender out here in this in, in, in these NFL screets, as some people would say. Um, nobody says it that way. I don't know why I said that. Uh, but overall, I think that the Rams are – phenomenal i do predict them to continue to stay in the top five in terms of nfl rankings and power rankings but we'll just have to see how it goes man like you continue to say it is very early on in this season and we've had we've seen teams start really really hot and then they kind of have little, have little pitfalls and little kind of stutters and 
the Rams are disgusting, man. The coaching staff that, that Sean McVay has and obviously the personnel on that team is built for a championship, and anything less would be a failure. I think my biggest takeaway from this game is obviously the availability of Russell Wilson, just because what looked like what could be a potentially serious, you know, finger injury. I don't know if it's a broken finger or if it's something that's dislocated that they couldn't pop back in. But I mean, if Russell Wilson can't go for the Seahawks for the foreseeable future, uh, that's going to be quite a tricky scenario to kind of work with as the season progresses. We'll see what happens. I imagine we'll, we'll get updates on Russell's status um, within probably the next couple of days or so. But that's going to be huge for Seattle moving forward. And if they if they don't have Russell Wilson at the helm ready to go for them, uh, that's going to be very difficult uh, for them moving forward. With the Rams, though, I mean, the Rams, they needed this bounce-back game against Seattle. I mean, they had that awful game against Arizona where they, to kind of put it bluntly, they kind of got stopped by the Cardinals in week four. But I thought this was a good, well-rounded performance by the Rams. I thought Matt Stafford, kind of did his thing outside of the one interception that he threw in the end zone. He looked like Matt Stafford of old in this game. I think he threw for over 350 yards and the defense stepped up when it needed to. They were able to force some turnovers, not only against Russell Wilson, but the key interception against Geno Smith at the end of the game. So I think this is a big win for LA moving forward. It's a huge divisional win as well. And it's like you said, Kev, this is one of the best teams in the NFL. They're definitely a top five team in my opinion. And moving forward, the Rams are just going to be a nightmare to contend with because you know what this offense is capable of. This offense could score at will, put over 30 points against anybody. And the defense, they have one of the best pass rushes in the league with Aaron Donald. And on the back end, you know, you got Jalen Ramsey back there who's just an absolute stud. And yeah, this is a very good win for, for LA, you know, being on the road and they just played the Cardinals like four days ago. So this is a big win for LA, you know, and that's why they're one of the best teams in the NFL. All right. We got the last segment. Come on, ask your question. Are you sure you you ready for this? I'm going to do my best to keep myself in check. Okay. So it does, it does bring me some pain to, uh, to bring this uh, next segment to Kevin, but uh, it has to be done. Uh, we're going to talk about the New York Yankees being eliminated from postseason contention after they lost to the Boston Red Sox in the AL Wild Card round. They lost that game by the score of six to two. Uh, we're not really going to rehash the game itself. I kind of mentioned that a couple days ago, and I imagine Kevin definitely has some bitter feelings towards Boston because of that loss. But I'm not going to bring that up. I'm mostly going to focus on what New York can do moving forward. So, Kevin, I'll ask the question to you. With the Yankee season coming to the end of the, that it did, what do you think that New York can do going into this off season, into this off season to be a more competitive team? So, again, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping emotions in check, and I'm trying to be as objective as humanly possible. I will get to the coaching staff in a few minutes. I want to touch on just one position and one position only. That is the most detrimental position for me for me in terms of in my opinion for the Yankees and that is the catcher position. Gary Sanchez 
has been absolutely non-existent for the majority of the last two to three years, depending on who you ask. Since the ALCS of 2017, the numbers supported. I'm not getting into a deep dive about that. Defensively, we know that the issue presents itself. He cannot stop a pass ball, and he probably leads the MLB in terms of errors at the plate or behind the plate at the catcher position. Kyle Higashioka is the better defensive catcher, but he doesn't have the strongest arm, and both of them do not have consistent enough bats. Kyle has terrible plate vision and does not know how to put the ball in play. He kind of strikes and swings and misses at terrible pitches. We all know Gary Sanchez just does not have discipline at the plate. And as shown in a pinch hit scenario uh, in Tampa, or should I say against Tampa to end the season in that final series, he's put in a pinch hit situation, three straight pitches, swings at garbage, just absolutely no discipline at the plate. And that just goes to show that he's just not ready to move into that next upper echelon place of some of the best catchers in the major leagues. He's been told multiple times by former players, by catching uh, catching coaches. But, I mean, I don't even think that's a position. I'm just throwing it out there. By multiple coaching staff members, he needs to change how he catches the baseball behind the plate. Gary is known for catching the ball always on one knee, which puts him at a disadvantage to stop pass balls. And as he's gotten further along in his career, those numbers have only increased because he is just completely unable to stop any breaking pitches that find a way to hit the dirt. And we're talking about baseball. Nobody's perfect. We know that pitches get away from pitchers all the time. But when you limit yourself to a certain range because you are not on both feet, that hinders you from your ability to be able to call a good baseball game. That hinders you to be able to stop those balls that do get away from the pitcher, let alone that do hit the dirt. So overall, I think we need to completely wipe the catching room from the Yankees lineup and we need to start fresh. I know that I've been preaching for Kyle, but seeing, and I mean Kyle Higashioka, not Kyle, my, my, my partner here, um, we just do not have a consistent hitter at that position. And for Garrett Cole to have a personal catcher, and that's why Kyle Higashioka is on this team, it's just not good enough for me anymore. That is just a position in which they're both batting under 200. Obviously, they both have terrible strikeout percentages, and Gary's got his issues behind the plate, and then Kyle has a noodle arm behind the plate as well. So that's one thing. Next, Joey Gallo's got to get the fuck out of New York. He's absolutely atrocious. I mean, the man batted under 150 his entire tenure in New York City. He had a week or two in the stretch in the month of August in which he had like seven or eight home runs in 10 games. Congratulations. They were wall scrapers. Some of them were great. But consistency-wise, you just do not know how to hit the baseball and put it in play. It is absolutely home run or bust. He led the MLB in strikeouts in the regular season. He also led the MLB, I think, in walks or something like that, or pitches, like the amount of times he was hit at the plate. I don't know, but one of them is not good enough for me, and that's definitely leading the MLB in strikeouts. No discipline at the plate either. Like I said before, he's sending it into the third deck of the bleachers, or he's absolutely swinging at garbage. So Joey's got to go. We need to trade away Luke Voigt or let him walk in arbitration because we have a great first baseman that we acquired from the Chicago Cubs in Anthony Rizzo who is one of the most consistent hitters on this team, who batted just under 250, had about 20-some-odd home runs, and is a gold glove, if not platinum glove, first base uh, player in terms of defensive efficiency. I would rather him play the way he was consistently in terms of offense and all-star compatible uh, defense than have Luke Voigt, who can't field the ball in the dirt for the life of him. Luke Voigt did great for the time that he was in New York. I'm not saying I don't appreciate him, but obviously if we're going to go out there and we're going to go try and acquire uh, 
another uh, another outfielder, which is going to take away Stanton's ability to play the field outside of some rest days. He will be our des- designated hitter for the foreseeable future, which takes away Luke's Voigt's availability because unless Luke is okay with coming off of the bench for rest days or injury days, I don't see him staying on this roster. Trade him while you can get value if it's available. Keep Rizzo, give him the extension, go get Judge his extension, and then cut your losses with Gary Sanchez. If Kyle has time on his contract, keep him as a backup. That's fine. I know we have a backup in the farm system. For whatever reason, I cannot remember his name. And then we're going to get to the pitching aspect of things. Garrett Cole was paid $324 million and has not been able to pitch his way out of a paper bag for basically the last three weeks. He sucked in Boston. He was not doing well to close the season out, and obviously we all know what happened in the wild card game, and he just did not have his stuff going for him. Does that take away from the ability that he is Garrett Cole? Does that take away from the fact that the man throws 100 miles an hour and has amazing stuff? Absolutely not. Am I saying he's trash? Absolutely not. When you pay a man that much money and he cannot produce in the most important moments, as a baseball player, fuck being a New York Yankee. That just adds way more pressure. But in playoff moments like that, where we need you to be Garrett Cole, where we need to hand you that $324 million if a gun was held to our head to say we need to win this game, and you give me two innings and three earned runs and two walks, I am not tolerating any excuse. I don't give two fucks if you are goddamn Cy Young himself. That is inexcusable performances, and he just did not have it, and I do not want to hear it. He needs to come into next season and absolutely tear up the league. I know that that speaks a lot of volume in terms of the team also has to give him some run support, and I know that early on we had a lot of no decisions and losses because he gave up runs early, but he held it through the rest of the game. In a winner-take-all wildcard performance, that is absolutely not what we have time for. We can't let him work himself out of those jams. And you can see when Boone came to get him, again, I'll get into Boone in a little bit, uh, he just he was ready to come out of the game. Guy, He literally said, and I quote, I'm out. He just, whether that meant mentally, whether that mean he knew he was coming out of the game or asking if he was coming out of the game, Garrett Cole just didn't have it going. We need another pitcher to support him. Tayon was a decent experiment at best. We had some pitchers come up in the farm system and Gill that looked very well. We had Clark Schmidt come up. Overall, the Yankees have been needing a second star pitcher. We went for the experiment with Corey Kluber. He did miss a good portion of the season with his injury. I believe it was a back injury. So we will see what happens on the pitching staff. The one area that I really am not too worried about is going to be the bullpen. I do know for a fact that Loisica showed himself to be an all-star. We have a lot, a lot, a lot of good relievers coming out of there. If we can sign Clay Holmes... If we can keep Severino back there on the bullpen aspect, I don't know if he can continue to be a starter. It really depends on the consistency that he's going to be able to perform into the next season because he's under contract. We will see. The one questionable aspect of the bullpen, or should I say two players, but in terms of questionable, would be the back half outside of Loisica, which is Chad Green, who had an atrocious year. And then Araldis Chapman had his ups and downs this year. I know that he started the season off with, I believe, 13 or 14 straight consecutive saves. But he went about a week, week and a half of a couple of blown saves that cost us a lot of great games that we were up by a decent amount uh, later on in the year. So I don't know in terms of what Cashman has in his mind of what he's going to do with Chappie. I don't know if he's going to trade him for some value, let him walk, cut him. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, we do need to solidify that back half. And if that means Loisica does move to the closer position or permanently at the setup spot, then so be it. We will just have to kind of once again play that by ear. 
I do see that portion of the bullpen being an issue if they both are re-signed. I don't know Chad Green's contract situation. I know he was given an extension after, I believe, the ALCS against the, uh, the, uh, the Astros in 2017. So if he's up, I don't know if we give him a one-year deal to kind of prove himself or if we kind of keep him on this roster just to give some veteran leadership in the bullpen. But that's one area I'm not too panicked about. And now we get to the most important part. Now we get to the part where I feel my hand starting to shake because this is the part that absolutely drives me up the wall, and that is lack of managerial presence. Aaron Boone cannot manage a baseball game to save his life. If a gun was put to his head and they said, win this game based off of your skill alone, he's getting shot several times. I know that is drastic. I understand that that is probably terrible of me to say as an individual, but it has just been reflected all season long. I mean, for God's sakes, in the wild card game, the second you see Cole give up that two-run shot in the first inning and then the second to Schwarber in the third, I wouldn't have even let it get to Schwarber, if I'm being honest with you. This is winner take all. You have 11 players in your bullpen. I immediately have someone warming up the second I see him give up that freaking that, that two-run shot to, to Bogarts. The fact that that changeup was sitting up in the zone to Bogarts and then the next player hit another uh, put another ball in play – I'm, 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 putting, I'm taking them out. I have to. I, I cannot afford to have you give up that many runs. And then, of course, he waits until Severino walks somebody to put in Lewiska. Lewiska gets out of the jam, and then Lewiska comes in, and he walks two to three players. You wait for the bases to be loaded to then bring somebody else in, in which you bring in Chad Green, who has statistically been one of our worst bullpen pitchers over the last, what, three months of the season? He literally looks at the situation and he waits for it to get to a point where there is no return or the damage has been done. And he says, you know what, fuck it, come out. His pinch hitting awareness this season, absolutely atrocious. His, 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 his substitution in terms of getting pitchers in and out of games and letting them kind of hang themselves, I, I don't understand. His base running situation of, of, of giving people the green light to steal. A, Tyler Wade got caught like four out of his last like five or six times in his base attempts, uh, base stealing attempts. And that's not because he didn't have a bad lead. You're just running on a catcher that has a great arm. And any common sense manager looks at a situation and says, if they know Tyler needs to run and they know that that catcher has a good, I'm, I'm literally pitching anything that's not off speed and I'm sending it. I'm literally throwing it to second nine out of 10 times. And then don't get me started on Phil Nevins, who sent Aaron Judge on that, on that shot from Giancarlo Stanton off the wall. That, that is absolutely uncalled for. Outside of our pitching coach, who dealt with a lot of injuries this year and was able to manage a great bullpen, whether or not it was up and down, he found a way to rally the troops together, get it done, and lock it down for games that were blown open in the beginning. Our bullpen held it down for the majority of the year. He is the only person on this team that has a solidified job, in my opinion, next season. Aaron Boone's contract is up. Get the fuck out. Phil Nepp, get the fuck out. Brian Cat, get the fuck out. I'm absolutely annoyed with the entire front office of this organization because they want a puppet. They want someone that listens to them from the top. In my opinion, there's no reason to get over-analytical in the sport of baseball because, to me, I'm very old-fashioned. If a pitcher is dealing, I don't give two fucks what numbers say. And I know that numbers are important, but that does not affect a pitcher's ability to continue his dump. A pitcher that comes off of, hypothetically, let's say, striking out the side 
within less than 10 pitches or 11 pitches, whatever. I'm talking complete confidence, no matter what portion of the lineup it's in. Outside of an MVP caliber pitcher who is just, I mean, a player like, like a Giancarlo Stanton or Mookie Betts or something like that, obviously I'm not pitching consistently to him. I'll pitch around him. And if I go 2-0 in the count, I'm going to walk him and I'm going to go and face the next guy. But that's a normal situation for a pitcher. For you to pull somebody because this is the third time that he's facing that pitcher or the third time in the lineup says that statistically speaking, this player is going to recognize the strike zone and he's going to hit the ball because throughout the regular season, he has hit better against pitchers his second and third time facing them. Bro, I do not care. You're putting in pitchers that are either terrible for the situation or just not prepared for the situation at hand. And I've had enough of Boone just throwing people in there because the analytics says so or because the people upstairs say to put them in. Bro, put your fucking foot down and say, no, my guy has been absolutely dishing. And if he has, if he makes a mistake, if he walks somebody, he gives up a double, then he gets pulled. I make sure someone's in the pen. You do not pull them because you're scared that someone's going to hit off of them. That's what pitching is. Uh, Granted, I understand I'm not the most baseball savvy individual and that analytics are crucial in sports. But you don't go and do that every single time and you overmanage a situation. Every time we play the Rays, it is Kevin Cash versus Kevin Cash because Aaron Boone does not know how to manage the way I have a paper bag. He always tries to overmanage certain situations that are just unnecessary. Again, I said it. Pinch hitting and pitching, substitu- uh, pitching substitutions has been atrocious since he has basically been the manager of the Yankees. We have progressively gotten worse in our lengthiness to last within the postseason. And since Aaron Boone has been the manager of the Yankees, we have not made it past the NLCS into a World Series. And I know that last time we were in an ALCS, we got annihilated. So the Yankees have a lot of things to work from in terms of this offseason. I don't necessarily know if Aaron Boone is going to be gone because Cashman loves to manipulate him because he is a puppet. But top priorities for me, go and get a catcher. Resign Judge and and uh, and Rizzo immediately, no hesitation, and we got to go out there and get another starting pitcher because Corey Kluber at his in, at his age and his peak, the experiment didn't pan out well, and we need to find a way to go out there and get somebody that is going to be able to combat and be a second ace alongside Cole. You feel better? No, I don't feel better because I wanted to throw a lot of f bombs and a lot of emotion, but I had to again remain objective. You owe somebody an apology, Kevin. Not me. There's somebody on Put the camera team. back on me. Put the camera back on me. Put the camera back on me. Giancarlo Stanton, if you ever hear this message, I have said a lot of stupid things about you over the last two to three seasons since you've been on this roster. Granted, you have been injured for the majority of that time, and when you did play, you had some streaks where you were hot, but you had some shitty cold streaks. This season, you were literally one of the best, if not the best player in baseball for pretty much the last month of the year. I wholeheartedly apologize for everything that I said. I'm not going to take it back because that's what, a, that's what a bitch would do. Because rightfully so, the criticism that I gave you was because you were not performing at the time. But this season, you took that criticism and you made me eat my words. Thank you for everything you did for this team this season. Because Lord knows you were the only one hitting in that damn game against the Sox. You should have had three home runs. But that damn green monster ruined everything for us. Should I say you? 
And you performed in every aspect of the way. I can't ask for any more. You did great this year. Thank you so much. Whether or not you end up playing the field or you end up just staying at the DH position, stay healthy, do your thing. Again, thank you, and I apologize for anything that I said. And that is my genuine apology to Giancarlo Stanton. Because homeboy was raking, bro. <laughs> I don't care if they lost that game. Bro, he was the best player on that field. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care if it was Nathan Avaldi who was dealing for the Red Sox. Giancarlo Stanton should have probably had three home runs in that game. But literally, he was, a... he, he, he was going to. He was feet away from it going over the monster twice. Bro, I thought the first one was gone. Everybody thought that that, bro, the crack of the bat when the ball hit it, I was like, oh, that's gone. And I couldn't believe that it didn't go over. The second hit that he had, I thought for sure he got that one over and misses it by like 10 feet. That third one, though, dude, that third one, even though they were down 6-1, bro, that thing was a a rocket missile. It was a missile. Like, I've never seen anybody hit a ball that freaking hard ever like just the velocity that he's able to get off of those hits i've never seen anything like it dude it's a dart it's like a bullet like i've never seen a baseball fly like that and he does it every single time it's not like he hits like these what i would say like these big boomers like they just go straight up in the sky and they eventually get over the wall no these are just freaking bullets that are flying out of the park with at like what, like 120, 130, 150 miles an hour, however fast that freaking ball is going off the bat. Bro, I've never seen anything like it. The dude Giancarlo is he's he's reverting back to his Miami days of him winning the NL MVP and him consistently putting good numbers out there. And I know that I mentioned the outfield. Brett Gardner's probably gonna be gone. Aaron Hicks is coming back from another surgery. So the outfield is gonna be a big question mark for us too. There's rumors that we're looking at Sterling Marte. I don't necessarily know how that's going to go. There's rumors that we're looking at Corey Seager for the shortstop position. There's even rumors that we're going to trade Glaber Torres. I didn't even want to get into that because his ass pissed me off towards the latter end of the season and not running out a freaking pass ball. Again, neither here nor there. The Yankees have a whole lot to work on this offseason. That drawing board has a lot of writing on the wall, and that starts with the management position, and that starts with the pitching position as well. We got to do some things. We got to make some moves. We are the fucking New York Yankees. If we got to spend a checkbook, fuck it. We spend a checkbook and we're the evil empire once again. I give no fucks. But we also have a phenomenal farm system. So I'm not going to sit here and say we have to spend money. But if we need to, no hesitation in my opinion. Pull the trigger. Brian, you are wasting literal prime years of Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton. Every year we don't make it to a World Series and win. Every single fucking year. And that's a fact. The, the stat that just boggles my mind about that game against the Red Sox is that... Seven walks. Well, not only that, that, that was atrocious. I mean, the whole pitching staff was atrocious that night. But Stan had the same number of hits as 10 other guys in the lineup. 10 other guys had the same number of hits as Stan. And yet they had, what, three, four at-bats at the plate? So you're telling me... Ten, ten other guys? What do you mean ten? There's only nine players that swing the bat. Well, Gary Sanchez hit. What did he hit? Uh, well, he had the one at bat. He pinch hit. Well, I, okay, well, nine nine batters then. 
I'm just saying that he had the same number of hits as no, nine other guys saying. on the lineup. Like someone's showing up. He is. Where's everybody else? You know, I know Rizzo hit the home run, so I mean, I'll give yep. him that. I, I remember That's Judge; he got a hit too. But still, like, Glaber Torres was like 0-3, 0-4. Um, I think you know the lineup better than I do, but like, I can go down. Ooh, the Brett Gardner, Brett Gardner, Joey like, oh, Gallo. They, they were like all 0-4 or 0-3. Yeah. Like, the catcher, the catchers combined were 0-3. I mean. There is one aspect of the game that does kind of confuse me. I know we're not getting into the game itself, but the fact that we started Andrew Velasquez at shortstop to then take him out after one plate appearance to then put in Rogan Odor doesn't really make much sense. In my opinion, obviously Andrew's better defensively. I think that the kid has a better bat. I do know that because he's inexperienced, that's why they put Odor in, but Odor's batting damn near 200, if not under 200. Velasquez is a youthful spark off of that bench. The team loves him. He's a Bronx native kid. That made no sense once again. Just a questionable decision at at, at best, to put it politely. And Aaron Boone's managing this situation. I mean, for for God's sakes, you literally put Odor in after one at-bat for Squid. It didn't make sense to me. For that, you start Odor, and if he doesn't pop off in the first at-bat or two, then you put the kid in. Don't start the kid, get him all excited, and then take him out after one shot. That makes just absolutely no sense to me. But again, what the fuck do I know? And DJ LeMahieu not playing, like you said in your video that you posted up today, was detrimental to us. One of our best and most consistent hitters over the last three seasons. And it just didn't happen. So, that is what it is. I think you guys miss Didi, too. Don't get me started. I love Didi. I pray to Didi every day that he'd come back. But he followed Joe, and I don't blame him. You guys side with Glaber. DD, I thought was the more consistent hitter. Anyway, guys, that about wraps it up because I'm I'm starting to starting to get upset. I'm going to start getting emotional. So, I did my crying. I did my frustration. I had my rants to myself and my dog. Sabo heard a lot of my rants, even though he had no idea what the fuck I was saying. As always, thank you guys for the support. In terms of subscriber and views, we have just been taking off the last few weeks. I mean, like, we went from 219 subscribers to 225 in about a week, if not less. And it's been great. I mean, the views have been obviously consistent. The likes, the comments, the interaction from you guys, whether or not you're subscribed or not, we just appreciate you guys stopping by. If you love the content, if you like the content, like the video, subscribe to the channel, hit the notification bell. We'll be posting two to three times a week, every week for the foreseeable future. Kyle and I love this. I mean, Kyle's been doing great work on the page in terms of the, the, the YouTube homepage and editing our background and making sure the videos are up on a timely fashion. So, I mean, to my partner, to, my, to one of my best friends, thank you for everything you do for us as a unit. And we would not be here without you. But, guys, we definitely wouldn't be here without you. So, thank you for all the support as always, man. It's been amazing. And I still have to, you know, show my appreciation to the people that listen to our podcast, whether it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You know, we definitely appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day to listen to us talk about sports. And I know that that last segment with Kevin, I know that was not particularly easy, but I think it was, um, I think it was necessary just to kind of get the feel of like where this team could go next year. Some things that they could change up going into 2022, but, um, yeah, like Kevin said, there, there's not much else that I could add to what he said. 
I just appreciate you guys supporting the podcast and how you do it. And Kevin, I mean, we got a solid slate of games coming up in the NFL this week. So that'll be definitely be fun to look forward to. Obviously we got the ALDS and the NLDS series both going on. I know we didn't touch on the, the Astros White Sox series or the Brewers and I don't even Brewers and Braves, the Brewers and Braves. But I imagine that both of those series will be pretty fun to watch uh, going into this weekend. Um, I'll wrap it up from here. You know, thank you guys for tuning in, whether you were listening to us or, or watching us. We appreciate you guys and we will see you guys later. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women.